Let's pray. Our Father, please move in our hearts this day by the power of your word and your spirit. Uh, please help me to uh, preach your word faithfully and clearly. Uh, give us ears to hear it, uh, to trust it. Uh, please assure us of your great love for us, I pray. Amen. Uh, so I think we all have at least some sense that there are different types of questions. Uh, our daughter Ada is full of them at the moment. Uh, she turned five uh, a little while ago. She's got all sorts of questions. Uh, mostly, uh, at times, it's pretty exhausting. You just want a moment of peace and quiet. Just stop with the questions, would you? Uh, but most of the time, actually, her, question, uh, her questions are quite endearing. You know, she's just so curious about the world. She wants to understand and be able to explain everything she's coming across. And that, that's quite endearing. But as I was uh, preparing this sermon, reflecting on the book of Malachi... Uh, I, I got to thinking, I reckon that there's a type of question, or perhaps a specific question, that Ada could ask uh, that I would not be so okay about. You see, from the moment Ada was born, Gabby and I have made every effort, by God's grace, uh, to love her. Uh, we're far from perfect, don't get me wrong, but still, I think there's plenty of evidence that we've loved her. We've made all sorts of sacrifices for her, where we've done our best to put her needs before our own, to feed her, to clothe her, to teach her, to train her, to, to protect her. Uh, we've made every effort uh, to love her. So imagine if in 20 or 30 years' time, we're we, uh, catching up with our daughter Ada, she's long moved out of home, of course, uh, hopefully, uh, right? Uh, so we're catching up with Ada, and we say to her, oh, we have loved you, and she says, what do you mean? What do you mean you've loved me? How is it that you have ever loved me? It's just a question, right? But it's a devastating question. Devastating for, for any parent to hear who's it poured their heart out, trying their best to love their child, and instead of their child being deeply assured of their love for them, uh, that their heart is full of doubt and bitterness, even cynicism about their love. What do you mean you've loved us? What do you mean you've loved me? That's a bit like what Israel does to God in this passage. In verse 2, have a look at God says to Israel, I have loved you, and they respond, how have you loved us? So that's the big idea we're going to explore today. Before we get into that, I don't want to skip over verse 1. Right? There's a whole lot of stuff in verse 1, all sorts of important things, all to do with the fact that, that God has spoken. You can see them in your outline that there's five things that I want to unpack from this verse. Right? So let's read the verse. It says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Five things. The first is, what's the reason for Malachi's prophecy? It's a little bit obscured in our translation here. It's kind of hidden in that word, prophecy. Right? Because that, that word relates to the Hebrew word uh, for carrying something around. Right? Not just carrying anything, but carrying uh, something that's really heavy. It's a burden to you, a heavy weight. So what's Malachi saying? He's saying that he speaks this prophecy because he has to. He speaks this word from God, but because he's being weighed down by it, it's a burden to him that, that, that has to be lifted off him. He, he doesn't start by saying, you notice this, uh, that he's just been thinking about some stuff, that he's got some nice ideas to share. 
he starts by saying that God has given him a message that is burdening him. It's weighing upon him. The only way he can get relief from that burden is by declaring that message to God's people. Of course, God still has a message for his people, for his world today, doesn't he? The message of the gospel. The the message, the good news that though we are sinners, we can be forgiven by God and welcomed into his family through trusting in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not a light message. It's not a a fluffy message, a trivial message. It's a weighty message. It's a message in which people's eternal destinies hang in the balance, depending on how they respond to it. It's a message that perhaps ought to burden us. And yet often it doesn't really. I feel this myself often before I preach. I have to do lots of praying during the week because I'm really conscious that it's so easy for me to get up and say true things, faithful things, but to say them in such a way that it shows I really don't understand the weight of what I'm talking about. Calling, saying that people are sinners and, and deserving of God's judgment and if they don't repent and trust in Jesus, they're going to eternity in hell? That's, that's weighty. And yet often I don't feel that. I have, to, I have to pray about that. I see it in other preachers sometimes. I feel they kind of breeze into the pulpit just to give a few self-help tips. As if people just need a few of their specials, pearls of wisdom when it comes to spiritual matters. A lovely set of anecdotes and a few funny jokes. They're very entertaining. There's no sense that they're standing in the very presence of God uh, before his people with a message to declare to them. That the Lord has burdened them with a weighty message. That's how Malachi feels. Burdened by this message that, that must be declared to God's people. That's the reason he speaks. He just, he just can't help but speak. Which brings us to, to the source of his prophecy, which, which is there in the, in the second part of this verse. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, if, you go, if you look at that verse, you'll notice that the, the word Lord there is written in small caps. Right? It's the way our English translations uh, translate the, uh, the personal name of God. Either the name God revealed to Moses uh, back in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. Right? So Exodus 3, God's calling Moses to go to Egypt to, to rescue his people. Uh, and in verse 13, Moses says, Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And so God says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Uh, verse 15, God says, say to the Israelites, the Lord, right, same name, the Lord, the, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, why dwell on this? Right? We read that, we skip over it. This is the word from the Lord. Yeah, get, get, get on to the actual word from the Lord. No, the, the point of this is that these words from Malachi to God's people come in the context of a very long relationship. That's what that name represents. Right? They come from the Lord. Right? The God who, yes, made everyone and everything. You see this name in Genesis 1 and 2, lots of time. He made everyone and everything, and yet he freely bound himself to one people, to Israel. 
bound himself to them, to love them, to speak to them, to save them. He is their Lord. So this prophecy comes from the Lord and it comes to Israel. To Israel. They're the recipients of the prophecy, which once again, we could skip over that, but it's actually a little bit odd. To Israel. You might remember that during the time of Jacob and when Israel first settled into the Promised Land, the 12 tribes of Israel were all one people. Right? It was called Israel. But then during the time of the kings Jeroboam and Rehoboam, you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 12, the kingdom of Israel split in two. So the 10 tribes in the north became known as Israel and the two tribes in the south became known as Judah. Uh, eventually, of course, the northern kingdom, uh, known as Israel, they went into exile under the Assyrians in 722 BC. Uh, so, but the book of Malachi is addressed to the southern kingdom. It's addressed to Judah. Right? The people who went into exile in Babylon and later returned to Jerusalem. Right? We know where there are hints of that in this. We'll talk about this in a bit. But say, uh, if you've got your Bible open, I encourage you to do that. Uh, down in verse 10, you, you'll see that uh, the temple is referred to there. Either the temple, which is based in Jerusalem. So why does Malachi, if he's speaking to Judah, why does he refer to Judah as Israel? Well, the immediate answer, I think, is that he's about to refer to Israel's history, a kind of ancient history, right? Jacob and Esau. So in that sense, that the original name of Israel is on his mind. It fits in the context. But I think the larger answer is that Judah now represents all of God's people. Judah, in a sense, is going to inherit and fulfill all of God's promises to the people of Israel. Ultimately, of course, through a particular descendant of Judah, right? Jesus himself, who is the true Israel. So Israel as in Judah, who represents all of Israel, are now are the recipients of this prophecy. Uh, who delivers it? Well, that's pretty clear. Right? Verse 1, it's from Malachi. And the name Malachi simply meaning my messenger. Right? So it fits, right? He's the messenger uh, of this prophecy to the nation of Israel. Uh, so the, that's the, this verse, the word of the Lord comes to Israel, uh, but through the specific personality, the style, uh, the specific context of Malachi. That's the last of these things. What is that context? I've got one more actually after this purpose. Yeah, but anyway, what, what is the context? Historically, Malachi prophesies after Israel has returned from exile in Babylon, uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem is being built, uh, rebuilt, and the temple has been rebuilt. So probably around 450 BC. A similar time frame to Ezra and Nehemiah, if you want to read other books that are related. Uh, we see hints of that. I mentioned this uh, in, in uh, chapter 1. Uh, for example, in verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, it, uh, it's pretty clear there that Israel's still under a Persian governor. God is critiquing their sacrifices. He says, try offering those sacrifices to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? We'll talk about that more next week. But it's clear that they're still, in some sense, under Babylonian rule, even though they've returned to the land. And then in verse 10, God, I mentioned this before, he refers to the temple. He talks about the doors of the temple being closed. So clearly the temple has been rebuilt after the exile. 
So that, that's kind of the historical context of where this book's fit, but book fits. But even more importantly is the spiritual context. Right? Because even though uh, they've experienced this incredible rescue from Babylon, even though God has enabled them to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, you think that their spiritual life would be kind of firing on all cylinders. But despite all that, spiritually speaking, the people of Israel are not in a good place at all. Uh, if you read through the whole book of Malachi, which I encourage you to do during the week, it's only a few chapters, won't take very long. If you read through the book, you'll see that the, the whole book is structured around Israel proudly questioning God. Uh, so in verse 2 of today's passage, uh, the big question we're going to explore is, uh, God says, I have loved you, uh, but they say, how have you loved us? If you've got your Bible open, look at that. In verse 6, God says, uh, It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Uh, but they ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? Oh, what are you talking about? Uh, so in verse 7, God says, You've shown contempt for my name by offering defiled food on my altar. Uh, to which they say, How have we defiled you? We're innocent, you get the vibe. Uh, to which God says, uh, By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Right? This is not the, the innocent curiosity of a four-year-old. Oh, please, God, fill me in. Right? It is proud and arrogant scepticism. Chapter 2, verse 17, Malachi says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. And they say, How have we wearied him? Malachi says, By saying that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, Where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, God says, Return to me, and I will return to you. Israel says, how shall we return to you? Rather like a, a child who's like, what do you mean say sorry? Well, I, don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to say sorry. That's Israel. Tell me how I should say sorry. Yeah. God says, would anyone be, anyone be so presumptuous to rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And Israel says, but how are we robbing you? Finally, chapter 3, verse 13, God says, You have spoken harsh words against me, to which his people say, How have we spoken against you? Right? That, that's the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. They have become a proud and contrary people. A people who've grown hard-hearted and sceptical and even a bit bitter and cynical about God. Of course, they're still going through the motions, performing all the rituals, ticking all the religious boxes, but their hearts are not in a good place. So God's purpose through this prophecy, through Malachi, is to reveal his love and holiness and goodness to his people in such a way that they are speechless. That's what he wants. He wants their proud mouths to stop answering back to him, to stop justifying themselves, to stop defending themselves, to stop questioning him, and simply tremble before him, giving him the fear and awe and reverence that he deserves. That's the purpose of the whole book of Malachi. So, so in chapter 1, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father, a slave his master. So if I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Right in verse 14, he says, I am a great king and my name is to be feared among the nations. My own nation doesn't even fear me. 
In chapter 2, verse 5, God's speaking about the priesthood of Levi. He says, My covenant uh, was with Levi, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Uh, This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Chapter 3, verse 5, God says, So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. Right? You get essentially everyone, God says, who does not fear me. That's the issue with all those people. They just do not fear me as they should. God knows that his people do not fear and respect him as they should. Their proud questioning repeatedly demonstrates that. So his purpose through Malachi is to bring them to a place where they fear and respect and really tremble before him as they should. Tremble at his holiness. Tremble at his goodness. Tremble at his love. And so we come to the big question in today's passage. Verse 2, God says, I have loved you, and Israel has the audacity to say, but how have you loved us? I mean, God's very patient, very patient. So he points his people to three phases of his love, if you like. The first, look in verses 2 and 3, he calls his people to see his love for them in the past. He says, there was not Esau, Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So the the fact that Israel are, are God's people, God says, should be proof enough of his love for them. But they are only his people because he chose them. That's why they're his people. This shouldn't have been news for Israel. You know, way back in Exodus 19, God said, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel should have known that they were loved by God because God chose them. right? And they should have been quite secure in God's love. Because they knew that God didn't choose them because there was anything particularly special about them. It wasn't attached to their performance in any way. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses said to Israel, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Well, you, see, you see Malachi's point. Israel should have known that God loved them because he, he'd set his affection on them. Out of all the peoples in the world he could have chosen, he chose them. He chose them. And he hadn't chosen them because they were bigger or better than anyone else, uh, because he specifically says they were the fewest of all peoples. He chose them simply because he wanted to. It was his freedom to do so as the God who made everyone and everything. Uh, But he loved them. He chose them. And just to reiterate that, Malachi takes them all the way back to the time of Jacob and Esau. 
Uh, it's a great place to go because Jacob uh, and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac. Right? The, in many ways, uh, they were equal. Right? Born at the same time. Right? Twins. Right? And, uh, and both of them uh, were not that impressive in terms of their character. Right? Neither of them were deserving of God's love. Uh, and yet God chose Jacob. He loved Jacob. And he hated Esau, Malachi says. Now, I think we probably get the idea, maybe you've got some issues with it, but we probably get the idea uh, that God chose Jacob. After all, we freely choose who we love, right? So God freely chooses who he loves. But, But why does that automatically mean that he hated Esau? Well, a scholar named Joyce Baldwin is helpful with this, I think. She says this. Uh, the very fact that Jacob was chosen, right, loved by God, uh, meant that Esau was rejected, hated. Rejection being implicit in the exercise of choice. Uh, personal animosity towards Esau is not implied. You might have trouble with that with the word hate, right? But, it's, uh, yeah. but Esau and his descendants, by nursing uh, resentment and showing hostility towards Jacob did bring God's judgment on themselves. I guess the picture here is a little bit like me freely choosing to marry Gabby. When I I chose to to marry Gabby, uh, there's a sense in which I was rejecting every other woman on the planet. Right? And not because I personally disliked them, not because I had had this personal hostility towards them, uh, simply because I'd chosen Gabby. And now, of course, uh, those women uh, didn't resent me for that. I'm just not that good a catch. I'm not that special. Uh, But the descendants of of Esau did resent Jacob. Right? They resented Jacob's God. Uh, And so they came under God's judgment. Look in verse 3. But Esau I have hated, I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. The context here, God is is showing Israel his love for them. So he says, if you want to know how I've loved you, look back. Look back at how I have cared for you. What did God do for Israel? He brought them in to the promised land, the land of Canaan. A good land, a land described as flowing with milk and honey. It was a wonderful land, a fertile land, a a good land. Uh, So God says, uh, and now look at the descendants of Esau. Their land is a wasteland, a wilderness, a place fit only for desert jackals. And you question that I've loved you, that I've cared for you? I have loved you, God says. I chose you. I've cared for you. And he says that to us today, this night. He says, I have loved you. Uh, we can easily get over-familiar with this idea that God says, I have loved you. Uh, to, to, oh, I think perhaps to appreciate it tonight, uh, maybe this week, uh, do a little bit more thinking about the I and the you in that sentence. I have loved you. Uh, the I there, of course, is none other than the sovereign and holy God. The one who made everyone and everything. The one who 1 Timothy 6 says is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who lives in unapproachable light. The one who no one has seen or can see. That that is the I. Transcendent, holy, pure. The I and the I and the you in that is us, isn't it? 
people who are proud, people who are self-centered, people who are deserving of the condemnation of a sovereign and holy God. And yet God says to us, I have loved you. And of course, just as he loved uh, Jacob, uh, Israel, by choosing them, he loves us by freely choosing us. And we can be assured that he didn't choose us because of our performance. He didn't choose you. If you're a Christian, he didn't choose you because you were good or better or religious or more successful. Right? Well, we know that but because he chose us before uh, we even existed. Right? Look at Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to flick to the New Testament, uh, flick to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 4 to 6. Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. Uh, Paul says he's unpacking all these kind of spiritual blessings that we can have through trusting in Jesus. And he says from verse 4, he says, God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for uh, adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Right? So God uh, predestined us, he chose us uh, before the creation of the world uh, to be his children, right? to, to be adopted into his family through trusting in Jesus. Right? And why did he do that? Well, look, look at the end of verse 5. Right? It's not because there was anything special about you, about us. It's not because he looked into the future and thought, oh, that person's going to be a good bloke or oh, that person's going to be more moral or more open to the gospel. No, he didn't choose you for any of those reasons. He chose you because it pleased him. It was in accordance with his pleasure and will. That's why he chose you. Because he's the sovereign God of everyone and everything and he wanted to choose you. So that's one way in which God demonstrates his love for us in the past, even before creating the world. It's by freely choosing us. But of course we've got a better place to look, another place. Right? The cross of our Lord Jesus. The people of Israel didn't have that. They had a great uh, kind of uh, story of uh, event of redemption in God setting them free from Egypt. But that all points towards Jesus, the one who gives his life for us on the cross. So Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've got stuff to look to in the past. God freely chose us. He sent his son to die for us. Of course, sometimes the way our lives pan out, where we can find ourselves uh, really doubting God's love. Or perhaps even you proudly question his love. As so you read this, you hear God saying, I have loved you. And you might be tempted to say, but how have you loved me? Look at my life. It's a mess. If you really loved me, you would have, you would have sorted this out and that out. And God says, well, don't just look at the circumstances of your life now. Look back. Look back to the fact that I freely chose you before the foundation of the world and that I gave my son so that I might have you as my child. Look there if you want to be assured of God's love for you. How, how could you ever have the audacity to say to God, how have you loved me? But God doesn't just call Israel to look back, does he? In verse 4, he calls them to look at the, the present. He says to them, Edom may say, well, this is right now, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. 
But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. So uh, the, the people of uh, the descendants of Jacob and Esau had both, uh, so that's Israel and Edom, uh, they'd both experienced really tough times at the hands of the Babylonians. Right? God uh, predicted this uh, in Jeremiah chapter 27. You want to read uh, Jeremiah 27 later on, but I'll read some verses. Uh, Jeremiah 27 verse 2, God says uh, to Jeremiah, Make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Then send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre and Sidon through uh, the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah king of Judah. Give them a message for their masters and say, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. This is what God says through Jeremiah. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and, and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will give all your countries, the descendants of Jacob and Esau, into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. So God predicted this through the prophet Jeremiah, and that's what happened. Israel and Edom were both destroyed by the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. But in his love for Israel, in his sovereign choice of them, as his special chosen people, God enabled Israel to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the land. And here he is very clear that he will not allow Edom to rebuild. Why? Well, because Edom has repeatedly refused to see his grace at work in the life of Israel. They've been stubborn. They've refused to, to honour and respect and submit to the God of Israel. And so God says, you see it here, God says their repeated refusal shows that they are a wicked nation, a wicked land. Unlike Israel, who because they've been chosen by the sovereign and holy God, are described as a holy nation. Exodus 19. A holy nation living in a holy land. But the point of this verse, in its context, is that God's love is not just a thing of the past. Malachi said, look back. Look back to the fact that I chose you. But now he's saying that God cares for his people right now. Every moment of every day, he's looking out for them. And once again, you might say, I just don't see that. Or you sit there and you're like, you just don't know half the mess that's going on in my life. It's all very well for you to say, God's looking out for me in the present. And that's probably true. I don't know the mess that's going on in your life. But even still, there are ways in which God is caring for you. God has given you the gift of his word. And in this country, we have free access to it, to read it whenever we want. He's given you the joy of, of Christian community. He's given you the, the beauty, the, the blessing of gathering with God's people to worship him, to be encouraged through his word. He's given you the assurance of his forgiveness, the assurance of his loving presence with you every moment of every day, the, the assurance that he's willing to hear and answer your prayers. As Gabby said, he's got big ears and a big heart. Right? He, these, those are just some of the ways in which God shows his special care for his people every moment of every day. How could we say, but God, how have you loved us? 
can't afford the new phone plan. Oh, God. You know, if you really love me. Yeah. God shows Israel his love for them in the past, in the present. He also points them to the future. Verse 5, have a look there. He says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord. Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Malachi is looking to the future here. He's saying, one day, God will open your eyes. You will see something different. One day you'll see, you'll really see Edom. And what will they say? They'll see how God reigns in his judgment over Edom. Israel will see that, he says. And you'll see how God reigns over you in his love and mercy and compassion. You'll see that. And when you see that, Malachi says, you'll no longer have the audacity to say, God, how have you loved us? That won't even come close. Instead, you'll fall on your knees, Malachi says, you'll fall on your knees before the Lord in fear and trembling, saying, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Yes, he's cared for us, but he reigns everywhere, even over Edom. We see that now. We see his judgment there. We see his care here. We see his anger there. We see his love here. Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So all of us are going to come into times when we doubt God's love. But that's normal to have some doubts. It's normal to have some questionings. But we really have to pray that we'd never become overly sceptical or proud in our questioning of God's love. If you're a parent, you've experienced this with a child. (laughs) What do you mean I've done something wrong? We have to pray that God would open our eyes, spiritually speaking, so we can see his love for us in the past. The incredible truth that in his his sovereignty, he freely chose us before the foundation of the world and that he gave his son so that he could have people like you and me as his children. We have to pray that God would open our eyes to see his love for us today in the present. To value the ways in which he cares for us every day. And pray that he'd open our eyes to see the great day. That great day in the future. On which all people, not just Israel, not just us, but people to the ends of the earth would declare, Great indeed is the Lord. Great indeed is the Lord. Malachi 1 verse 14, uh, he is a king, he is a great king to be feared by all nations. That every people of every nation would be trembling at the awesomeness of his love, of his majesty, of his glory. Malachi is saying that day, have your eyes fixed on that day. Great indeed is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, We do confess that often we uh, can be going through the motions of our Christian life. And perhaps one symptom of that is that we have ceased to tremble at the incredible reality that you have shown your great love for us. Uh, That you chose us before the foundation of the world, that you sent your son to die for us, that you filled us with your spirit, that you care for us each and every day. Uh, that you have a great future 
for us when we'll be gathered around the phone, uh, your throne declaring, great indeed is the Lord. And yet often we might find ourselves saying, but how have you loved us? Please, Father, work in our hearts this day to bring us to a place where we truly tremble at your love rather than questioning it. Amen.